Welcome to another episode of Changemakers Without Borders. I'm your host and producer, Mike Cooper, and today we'll be talking about the Cold War. More specifically, about Alexander Solzhenitsyn, a man who grappled with death itself on occasions that are almost too many to count. A man who, like many others, was reduced to mere scum by the communist regime of the USSR. But he kept a spirit of a fighter and a writer and received a Nobel Prize for Literature for chronicling the 200 or more interviews he had with his fellow prisoners, as well as his own experiences in the Soviet concentration camps. What Alexander Solzhenitsyn called the Gulag Archipelago. Let's jump right in. When we hear about the Cold War, we may be hearing in the back of our minds, Gorbachev, take down this wall by Reagan. Or we see the images of the bright, illuminating light shining on the men and women breaking down the Berlin Wall that separated between the west and the east of Germany with their hammers and picks. And we can feel the sense of fear many had that at any moment someone will push the button and the world will be over with a bang. And you may have thought it tragic not to mention other adjectives to think of all the weeping they will do. But don't you worry, no more ashes, no more sackcloth, and an armband made of black cloth will someday never more adorn a sleeve. For if the bomb that drops on you gets your friends and neighbors too. There'll be nobody left behind to grieve, and we will all go together when we go. What a comforting fact that is to know. Universal bereavement, an inspiring achievement. Yes, we all will go together But what we, we may go. not remember, or even know nowadays, is the brutality the constant suffering that was inflicted upon the Soviet citizens. The pungent aroma of fear. Yes, fear of the communist regime that Stalin and the murderers before and after him, Lenin, Khrushchev, Baria, who held the people of Russia at their throats for more than half a century. For a while, though, People in the West were not aware, some still aren't, of the constant mass killings of innocents in the dead of the night, where the secret police, who got paid better when they worked late-hour shifts, would raid people's apartments and homes at 2, 3 in the morning, haul them out of their beds with their nightclothes still on, force them into the secret police cars that were parked just underneath their apartment building, and drive to one of the secret police NKVD or KGB government buildings. To tell you the truth, those types of arrests were a luxury, according to Solzhenitsyn, when you would be picked up from your home. Most times, arrests by the NKVD agents were done when no one could help you, when you were far away from your friends, far away from your family. Often, NKVD agents orchestrated arrests when men would return from work, they would send him on a train trip to a city for a matter he needed to deal with urgently and then assassinate him on the way there 
in the middle of the Russian wilderness beside the train tracks when the train had stopped, or when the man had left his work and lure him out into an alleyway. One of the largest buildings they took prisoners to was the headquarters of the Russian secret police, the Lubyanka. Once parked beside the building, the secret police officers would take the often innocent prisoners into its basement, whose floors were specially designed with slopes and channels that streamlined the blood from the mass killings that occurred there to minimize the amount of cleanup needed between each purge. They say that from the Blue Bianca's basement, you could see Siberia. Prisoners were not always given the luxury of a quick death, and the officers would pile prisoners up into small dark cells where there was so little room that prisoners had to move in unison if they wanted to change their position on the floor. Prisoners were tortured, raped, beaten, taunted, and defiled to the worst possible levels. Tens of thousands of innocent Russians died this way, but their deaths were claimed to be necessary for bringing about the utopia, the ideal of the Russian communist vision. Even today, many people believe that communism in its highest form was not ever given a chance because of corrupted officials, but unfortunately, it is likely they have never, ever read Alexander Solzhenitsyn's The Gulag Archipelago. Which you know about, The Gulag Archipelago, which was released in the West and then circulated all through the Soviet Union and was in undoubtedly one of the factors that contributed to the demise of the Soviet Union. In all honesty, I had not wanted to write this episode on the Cold War in the beginning at all. The subject seemed irrelevant to me. What did communism and its history filled with bloodshed have to do with the West? But then I realized that the Cold War was not a traditional war. Rather, it was a war of ideas. And that I must delve into the idea the enemy held to understand the significance and possible far-reaching consequences of such ideological dogmas and what it has done to our world, even until today. I wanted to know about the Cold War beyond the nuclear armaments war and the arms race. I wanted to know what about the society of the Soviet Union that was so destructive, that created more deaths and starvation than even the Nazi regime was able to create. We shall be told what can literature do in the face of a remorseless assault of open violence? But let us not forget that violence does not and cannot exist by itself. It is invariably intertwined with the lie. They are linked in the most intimate, most organic and profound fashion. Violence cannot conceal itself behind anything except lies, and lies have nothing to maintain them, save violence. Those were the powerful words of Solzhenitsyn in his acceptance speech of the Nobel Prize in 1970 for literature. 
I want to bring a clip from the Pulitzer Prize winner, Anne Applebaum, professor, author, and historian, who is an expert on this subject. She wrote Gulag, a history, among other books like Red Famine, Stalin's War on Ukraine, or Iron Curtain, The Crushing of Eastern Europe from 1944 to 1956, or Twilight of Democracy, The Seductive Lore of Authoritarianism, among many other books and writings in prominent editorials. She provided important works while in Central and Eastern Europe before and after the Berlin Wall in 1989. And her ability to speak Polish and Russian was a huge asset in delving into this subject and understanding it. And she traveled to Russia to write about the Soviet concentration camps. Having more archived material than Solzhenitsyn would have even dreamed of. The importance of his book was really the timing of it and the monumentality of it, that it was, it was produced at a time when the Soviet Union was still closed, when few people in the West really knew this story, and it was eye-opening for millions of people. Uh, my book is not that, because we do know this story already, but it does contain uh, material and points of view that he wouldn't have been able to have. Solzhenitsyn was born in the midst of World War I, on a cold December day of the 11th of 1918. His father was relatively wealthy, but his family did not stay that way for very long. Alexander actually did not grow up with his father. His father had died in a hunting accident before he was born, and when Alexander was 12, the property his father had owned was taken forcibly and turned into a collective farm, leaving his mother and himself with practically nothing to live on. And I do mean nothing. Most of the people in Russia and the Ukraine died of starvation. Collective farms were part of the communist collectivization campaign that began in 1928 as part of the communist revolution, an idea that generally meant everything belongs to everyone. In the principles of the collectivization, peasants were to work together to produce food for the nation. But in reality, it became another source of suffering and forced labor. What actually happened is that the peasants would produce food from their land, but they would be forced to sell it only to the government at a fixed price that the government had set, and there was no changing it, even if inflation rose, which meant that producers would receive money that was less and less valuable, and it didn't cover even half of their production costs people would have to go and buy food from the government. They would not be able to buy from farmers themselves. And the payment was always, almost always, 300 or more percent of the actual production cost. So people were not even able to buy their own food. And people were starving by the millions. It especially happened in Ukraine, where in, people were very much against the collectivization farms where they had no control over who they were able to sell their food to, where many farmers were punished for uh, giving, people, giving food to the people of the land. Um, people who were found in the Ukraine to hold even a few grains of a crop in, their, in the cup of their hand could be sentenced to 10 years of of back-breaking labor in the Gulag. Of course, this was not only in the Ukraine, this was all over the Soviet Union, but in the Ukraine, many of the farmers were 
vocally against the collectivization farms. In the Ukraine, though, many times entire families were loaded on a wagon and sent to the camps, to the war camps, but would starve on the way there. Eventually, mass starvation in the Ukraine and Russia occurred. Just in the Ukraine, in seven years, seven to ten million Ukraine people died of starvation. Some people call it the Starvation Holocaust. Second, we'll hear Dr. Applebaum again referring to the mass deportations the Soviet Union forced upon the farmers of their land to faraway places. Some two million were deported to Siberia, Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, and other republics in Central Asia, starving on their way there without even being allowed to exit the carriage. Yes, to get people into the trucks to go to the train station, they would get, get so many people in they would make the men sit with their legs apart and each set one in front of the other so that, like sardines, they would be all lined up to get more people into a small space. People had to defecate into their shirts or stab holes in the floor of the carriage and defecate while in motion. But there was little to no room for any movement at all. And the process of deportation was in some ways almost as horrific as being sent to a camp because you were put in a village and you were not given any food or any money and or sometimes there wasn't even a village there that you were told to build it. Um, and it was a very isolated place where you knew nobody and many people died um, there as well. Anyone who has once proclaimed violence as his method must inexorably choose the lie as his principle. Violence does not always and necessarily lunge straight for your throat. More often than not, it demands of its subjects only that they pledge allegiance to lies, that they participate in falsehood. The simple act of an ordinary brave man is not to participate in lies, not to support false actions. His rule, let that come into the world let it even reign supreme, only not through me. But it is within the power of writers and artists to do much more, to defeat the lie. For in the struggle with lies, art has always triumphed and shall always triumph. Visibly, irrefutably for all, lies can prevail against much in this world, but never against art. Those were the powerful words of Solzhenitsyn in his acceptance speech for the Nobel Prize of Literature in 1970. Despite the need to constantly fight for her and her son's survival, Solzhenitsyn's mother raised him with an emphasis on literary and scientific studies. His late father was a farmer and an intellectual, and his mother kept this spirit up in her son. The scientific emphasis stuck, and Solzhenitsyn studied mathematics at Rostov University, excelling even while he lived in a world of little food and meager means, receiving a Stalin scholarship for postgraduate studies. 
Solzhenitsyn met his first wife, Natalia Reshetovskaya, there, a chemistry student who loved music as much as Solzhenitsyn loved writing and literature, but who, shortly after marrying him, would not see him for 15 years. The same year they married, they both took up jobs as teachers. Alexander taught mathematics at Rostov Secondary School, and in that time was also able to send material to a journal, but was rejected. When he was 22, in the year of 1942, Solzhenitsyn would be sent to fight on the front lines against the Nazis, commanding a military battery, and rising to captaincy in 1945, the same year he would be arrested. The NKVD had intercepted his letters to a school friend, where Solzhenitsyn criticized, with using disguised terms, the leader of the communist regime, Stalin, the bloodiest and most deplorable human being to have lived on this earth. Well, almost. There was Beria, too, which Stalin was afraid of even more than he was afraid of anybody else. Solzhenitsyn was a brave soldier and decorated twice. For three long years, he fought on the front lines against the Germans without a break. In his own words from the Gulag Archipelago, quote, The universe has as many different centers as there are living beings in it. Each of us is a center of the universe, and that universe is shattered when they hiss at you, You are under arrest! If you are arrested, can anything else remain unshattered by this cataclysm? But the darkened mind is incapable of embracing these displacements in our universe, and both the most sophisticated and simpleton among us, drawing on all life's experience, can gasp out only, Me? What for? And this is a question which, though repeated millions and millions of times before, has yet to receive an answer. Lights remained constantly on in prisoner cells. Often, prisoners would not be allowed to sleep at all. Peepholes in the prison cell doors allowed NKVD officers to look inside and see if prisoners were asleep or awake with the aid of the 200-watt bulb that dangled above them, always on, day and night. Solzhenitsyn describes one of his friends that he met in the Gulag that was able to devise a certain technique that allowed him to keep his eyes open while he fell asleep, sitting on a stool in the interrogation cell for weeks on end. Some guards quickly walked between cells in their corridor to see that their prisoners were still awake, creating a one to two minute interval between each of their checks. Some prisoners were able to train themselves somewhat to fall asleep for those two minutes, those precious two minutes at a time, and that was one of the ways that they survived. For the times prisoners were allowed to sleep, they had to keep their hands on top of their blankets, no matter the temperature in the cell, which of course was unheated and could get to freezing temperatures. Guards enjoyed heated corridors. The reasoning behind the ruling for keeping hands on top of the blanket was to prevent prisoners from strangling themselves underneath their blankets. Solzhenitsyn describes his fellow prisoners devising another technique, 
of wrapping a towel around their arms and then quietly, furtively, slipping their hands out and allowing their arms to be underneath the blanket while keeping very still. From the outside, it still looked like their arms were on top because of the wrapped towels. The cell walls, stripped of wallpaper and plastered anew, were foreboding and gray, silent but listening to every breath and every word they said with hidden microphones. In the Lubyanka, the first jail that Solzhenitsyn was taken to, sometimes called the Big House by the prisoners, allowed them to have a hot shower every ten days to clean off what Solzhenitsyn described as black crust on their faces. Prisoners got barely four and a half ounces of bread a day, plus broth made of horses that were slaughtered each morning. For the whole day, dozens of prisoners would eat the amount of what one guard in the prison would eat in just one meal. The windows were muzzled with iron bars, something which all the prisoners knew to be Beria's doing. In Chapter 5 of the Gulag Archipelago, called First Cell, First Love, Solzhenitsyn asks, How is one to take the title of this chapter? A cell and love in the same breath? And he continues on to say, But what about the punishment cells? And what about the supreme measure? Execution? No, that isn't what the chapter title is about. Not at all. You sit down and half close your eyes and try to remember them all. How many different cells you were imprisoned in during your term? It is difficult to even count them. And in each one were other people. People there might be two people in one, 150 in another. You were imprisoned for five minutes in one and all summer long in another. But in every case, out of all the cells you've been in, your first cell is a very special one. The place where you first encountered Others like yourself, doomed to the same fate. All your life, you will remember it with an emotion that you otherwise experience only in remembering your first love. Solzhenitsyn continues to describe the experience of being in the Lubyanka, the first prison that he was in, and a feeling of dumbfounding happiness that filled his whole being at being with other people. His fellow prisoners taken from his isolated interrogation cell, finally, where the guard kept threatening that he would shoot a bullet through his head, robbing Solzhenitsyn of the opportunity to see another fellow human being ever again. He could not keep the smile, the happy, simple smile he had on his face when he finally saw others, whom he could speak to and learn from and be in their company and finally free of the interrogation cell. The moment he came in, the other prisoners asked him if he was from freedom. He realized that compared to them, he was. How little did he know that he would not have a taste of freedom for the next 20 years. Solzhenitsyn would be in the Gulag work camps for eight years and then exiled from Russia for life, sent to Kazakhstan in one of the, one of the East Asia republics. 
but he will continue to write books about the Gulag and the Soviet system. One prisoner with lively eyebrows asked him for military and political news, and Solzhenitsyn was astonished. The prisoners hadn't heard anything about the Yalta Conference, even though it had been weeks since it had occurred, nor had they heard about the Red Army being able to encircle the German army in East Prussia, among other important events. They weren't allowed to know anything about the outside world, according to the rules for people under interrogation. But there was one prisoner that made Solzhenitsyn's skin prickle. Georgi Kramarenko was a man of the same age who also came from the military, like Solzhenitsyn, and judging by the type of hat, he was a pilot. Kramarenko helped Solzhenitsyn organize his cot when the guard had brought it into the cell, but instead of asking for news, he asked if Solzhenitsyn had any tobacco. Quote, Although I felt open-hearted towards my friends, and although not many words had been exchanged in the few minutes since I joined them, I sensed something alien in this frontline soldier who was my contemporary, and as far as he was concerned, I clammed up immediately and forever. End quote. Apparently, later on, Solzhenitsyn says that there was what's called a stool pigeon. This is a person who acts as a decoy, a double agent, you could say, who acted as an ally to the communist government, not an ally to the people. Quote, I had not yet had time to think things over and conclude that I did not like this fellow, Georgi Kramarenko, but a spiritual relay, a sensor relay, had clicked inside me, and it had closed him off from me for good and all. I would not bother to recall this event if it had been the only one of its kind, but soon, out of astonishment and alarm, I became aware of the work of this internal sensor relay as a constant inborn trait. The years passed and I lay on the same bunks, marched in the same formations, and worked in the same work brigades with hundreds of others, and always that secret sensor relay, for whose creation I deserved not the least bit of credit, worked even before I remembered it was there, worked at the first sight of a human face and eyes, at the first sound of a voice. So, with this sensor relay, as Solzhenitsyn calls it, he was able to save his life. I'll soon read a part in which he continues to describe it, that he had opened up himself so many times to people he never knew, almost recklessly, to the point where he could have paid the price of death, but that nothing ever happened to him, and that this sensor relay allowed him to feel immediately if there was someone who would actually be a danger to him, making him automatically shut up or not yield to them at all. So here we go, another excerpt from the Gulag Archipelago. Quote, This was so consistently unfailing that all the efforts of the state security officers to employ stool pigeons began to seem to me as insignificant as being pestered by gnats. After all, a person who has undertaken to be a traitor always betrays the fact in his face and in his voice, and even though some were more skilled in pretense, there was always something fishy about them. On the other hand, 
The sensor relay helped me distinguish those to whom I could, from the very beginning of our acquaintance, completely disclose my most precious depths and secrets. Secrets for which heads roll. Thus, it was that I got through eight years of imprisonment, three years of exile, and another six years of underground authorship, which were in no wise less dangerous. During all those 17 years, I recklessly revealed myself to dozens of people and didn't make a misstep even once. In brackets, Solzhenitsyn says, I've never read about this trait anywhere, and I mention it here for those interested in psychology. It seems to me that such spiritual sensors exist in many of us, but because we live in too technological and rational an age, we neglect this miracle and don't allow it to develop. End quote. You are listening to Changemakers Without Borders. I'm your host and producer, Mike Cooper, and I hope to see you on the next programs. Thank you for lending your ears.